Sometimes, especially around the holidays, being a modern, globalized citizen of the world isn't so easy. And I have to smile, and I have to think, this is wonderful, and the kids enjoying this. Well, all the while, I'm thinking to myself, this is disgusting. Jonathan Grobert explains which parts of Dutch holiday traditions don't translate so well for American observers. Mary Barone is an American who married a Frenchman and moved to Paris. She offers up some clever insider tips for how to walk and talk like the French do. The French love to talk about their bodies in a way that is really surprising to us. And two guides from Madrid tell us why their city is one of those hidden gems that Americans often overlook. Because everybody talks about Barcelona, Paris, Rome. Madrid is the sleeper, is there to discover. American expats give insights about living in Amsterdam and Paris, and two Madrilenos take us on a walk in pedestrian-friendly Madrid. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If you really want to get to know a place, become friends with the locals. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and some of my friends from Europe join us today on Travel with Rick Steves to arm us with insider information about the pleasures of living in or visiting Paris and Madrid. Let's start today in Amsterdam, where a much-loved Dutch holiday tradition for St. Nicholas Day turns out to be one of those revered cultural holdovers that American-raised Jonathan Grobert actually finds kind of hard to swallow. He's here to tell us what can make the traditions of December 5th in the Netherlands a challenge for outsiders. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I understand you've got a 5-year-old and a 10-year-old. That's right. What's Christmas like in the Netherlands? Okay, well, Christmas is not like Germany, for example, where they have, they're really big on Christmas in Germany, you know, Weihnachten, and they have big markets all over the country, and it's, you know, people are drinking mulled wine, and it's, and it's really fantastic. Now, Christmas in the Netherlands is traditionally very subdued, and the reason that's the case is because they've already had the gift-giving holiday on the 5th of December. Ah. And that holiday is called Sinterklaas. And this is the way Sinterklaas works, okay? Sinterklaas, first of all, is a former bishop of Palmyra in Turkey, but he lives in Spain. He looks like a bishop. He's very tall. He's very thin. He's dressed in white. He has a, a long beard like Santa Claus, except he's thin. He's skinny, like I said, and he's got a big bishop's mitre on his head with a big old cross on it. And he comes to the country from Spain on a steamboat, and he's the friend to all the children, and he, of course, is bringing lots of gifts. He hangs around for two weeks. He turns up in every shopping mall and in every school, and he's never alone, okay? And the holiday is otherwise very nice, and the kids sing these songs, and they're eating all this kind of candy, and they're having a great time, and they just can't wait for Santa Claus to come by. But, but the problem is this. I am an American, and Santa Claus has his little helpers, and his little helpers are called the Black Peters. And the Black Peters, the Svartapita, are men and women, white men and white women, in blackface, with big, giant red lips and Afro wigs on, dressed up like little medieval clowns. And they serve Sinterklaas, and they are sort of his hitman in a way, because if you're naughty then the tradition is is that the Black Peter will come and he will hit you with a stick and then he will put you in his bag and he will kidnap you and bring you back to ah. Spain. Whoa. Okay? <laughs> you just couldn't do that. That's, that's, that went out with the minstrel shows here. Well, no, of course you couldn't do that in the United States. Ah. And of course, as a, you know, as an American, when I saw this imagery, I was thoroughly, thoroughly appalled. Oh, my okay? goodness. And I have a problem with this. I have a problem because... As a dad, I have to pretend to go along with all of this because my kids love it, especially my five-year-old now, but also his older brother before him, you know? I mean, I had to sing the songs and I had to gleefully accept the candy from the Black Peters, from the blackface minstrel little black sambo imagery that I'm being presented with, you know, and I have to smile and I have to think, this is wonderful, and the kid's enjoying this. Well, all the while, I'm thinking to myself, this is disgusting. <laughs> you know, this is not how I was raised. When uh, the kids get older, we have to tell them that Santa Claus is not real. And then when your kids get older, you got to tell them that blackface is, is really not okay. You know what? I, 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 sometimes it slips out. Oh, sometimes it gets out there. And I have to bite my lip because I don't want to spoil it for them because... You know, as little kids, right. they're completely innocent of these oh, yeah. things like racial tension and imagery and the semiotics of race, you know? <laughs> but, you know, Jonathan, you get a lot of that in Europe. I was just in Venice, and they had a chandelier with a bunch of um, 
African heads on all of the candle holders. And there's this old-fashioned racism that survives in the decoration of Europe, which is just really quite shocking. And I didn't realize it even spills into holiday celebrations. That's right. And, and the thing is, what's really interesting lately is that it's becoming a real point of cultural contention because there are a number of people in the country these days who do think it's wrong. But anybody who stands up openly and says that they think it's wrong gets shouted down. There's at least four or five other people who are willing to shout them down. Now, this is the Netherlands, right, where all shades of opinion are tolerated normally, right. where pretty much anybody can say anything. And this is a genuine holy cow where if you touch it and you become critical, people get genuinely upset at you. Here's a perfect example. Last year, a Dutch black guy was standing at a Santa Claus celebration and he was wearing a T-shirt that says Black Peter is racism. And that's all he was doing. We know that's all he was doing because somebody filmed him. He was literally standing there. He wasn't saying anything to anybody. And the cops came over, wrestled him to the ground and took him away. Whoa. So in the Netherlands, that's one no-go area. You don't mess with Black Peter and Sinterklaas. That's right. What would Sinterklaas do if he had no Black Peters? You know what? He wouldn't be able to deliver the presents. There you he go. He wouldn't have his, his little enforcers. So, <laughs> Okay, well, now that's, that's December 5th. So you, the gift-giving and all that sort of chaos for the kids is out of the way. Then you've got a different kind of celebration at Christmas time. The Netherlands are fairly secular, but how does the religious aspect of Christmas play out at Christmas time? It's still a big holiday. Everybody gets two days off, first day of Christmas and second day of Christmas. And people go visit their families, and they usually have a nice, but not particularly special meal. And it's quiet. People see it as quiet. And there's no, no gift-giving for the kids at Christmas, then? Maybe a little. Okay. Nothing big. I mean, all the really big gifts, you know, the Wii's and the Nintendos, those have been given at, at Santa Claus. That was 20 days earlier, yeah. That's right. So the little gifts, they'll get a small gift or something like right. that, something symbolic. Okay, Jonathan, so you have your Sinterklaas Festival on December 5th. You get your cozy family time at Christmas, actually. And then how do the Dutch celebrate New Year's Eve? They celebrate New Year's Eve by trying to blow each other up. Explain. <laughs> it's, it's only legal to sell fireworks for three days out of the entire year in the Netherlands. Those are the three days before New Year's Eve. Wow. Out in you, as it's called in Dutch. And each and every year, numerous fires are started throughout the country. People become amazingly, amazingly irresponsible, and that includes me. And they spend, literally spend millions and millions and millions of euros just buying lots and lots of fireworks. And at midnight, they go off all at once. And it is, I have to say, it is pretty spectacular. It's amazing. You know what's interesting, Jonathan? The Dutch, the Netherlands, it's the most densely populated part of Europe. And a lot of my Dutch friends tell me we live like as regimented as if we're in a jukebox, you know. And it's just everything is super organized and, and very logical. But it also seems that the Dutch really vent when they can. You've got your queen's birthday. That's a huge deal. And it sounds like you do the same thing on New Year's Eve. You know what? I think there might be something to that. Yeah. People are pretty controlled, but when they get these moments to be legally out of control, they, they grab it with both <laughs> hands and go for it. All sure right. they do. Sure. Well, I hope you and your kids have a great, great Christmas. How do you say Merry Christmas in Dutch? It's prettige kerst. Wow. Yeah. Don't try and say that five <laughs> times with, with crackers in your mouth. All right, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Good luck parenting through all that Black Peter uh, confusion. Een prettige kerst en een gelukkig nieuwjaar. Oh, that's a good one, too. Happy New Year is what? Gelukkig nieuwjaar. Whoa, that, that is Dutch. That's, that's all I know. That, you could listen to that and you go, that must be Dutch. Thanks again, Jonathan. You're welcome. Jonathan Grobert has been a host at Radio Netherlands ever since the waning days of the happy station on shortwave. However, recent austerity measures have cut deep into Radio Netherlands, and Jonathan's program, The State We're In, is one of many that have been dropped. So Jonathan has a little extra time to share some more about life in the Netherlands, and he'll be with us next month on Travel with Rick Steves. He'll be back to explain some of the political issues that have kept things really hopping in the Netherlands in the past year and what the Dutch politicians expect to be dealing with in the year to come. Scandinavia also has an early holiday tradition, one that dates back to solstice observances in pre-Christian times. Marita Bergman from Stockholm joins us now to illustrate how December 13th, that's Santa Lucia Day, is a cherished pre-Christmas gift-giving holiday in Sweden. Marita, happy holidays. A big day in Sweden is Santa Lucia Day, right? December yeah. 13th. Yeah, that's true. It's a special day 
It's a day when we uh, greet the light coming into the dark period. We start in December and especially at Lucia to greet the light coming back. Greeting the light. And mm. it's done with adorable little children with crowns of candles on their heads? Yeah. In every school, in every elderly home uh, comes children. A little parade of children bringing good cheer. Yeah. There are smaller children with Lucia, which normally is a... An older girl then with this crown of uh, living lights, candles. Actual uh, in candles her hair. on yeah. her hair. Not with the smaller ones, but. No. Uh, and then they are singing their traditional songs. And do they bring uh, a goodies to the old folk? They bring cinnamon cookies. Cinnamon cookies. Uh, and also saffron buns. Who's Yul Tomta? Yul Tomtem, that is a man that comes to everyone's home with the smaller children. Uh, so he's the the Swedish Santa Claus. He is the Swedish Santa Claus. You yes. Tomte, is he fat? Yeah. He's fat. He has a beard. I understand in Sweden there's some interest in writing on the wrapping paper rhymes. Yeah, on the uh, presents there is a kind of something written in it to give a clue what there is in the present. Oh, so actually the parent or the person working for Yulatomta yeah. will write on the paper a rhyming poem making clues to what's in the package. Yeah, true. And it has to be very, very mystical. I mean, it can't be too clear what is in it. So the better rhyme you have done, (laughs) the more you have to think. And the children, of course, the parcels lying under the Christmas tree can go and sneak and read also before. Oh, when I was little, I would shake the package to try to find what's inside. I could make a noise. But here... You can read the puzzle in the poem that the parent wrote on the present wrapping. That's true. I love that. Now, what's the traditional food and drink of Christmas in Sweden? We drink this spicy wine, which we call gulög. Glog. Gulög. Gulög. And that is a kind of a sweet wine, uh, which is then spiced with different kinds of spices. Uh, Very, very, very good. It's a hot wine. It's a hot wine, and you can get it also quite strong. Well, it's about 20% alcohol in it, uh-huh. so it uh, can get quite joyful on Christmas Day. We have Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Is there a song in Swedish that sort of everybody knows and everybody loves? If somebody can play the piano, they'll try it. Of course, there are uh, those ordinary songs also sung all over, like Silent Night and so on. But then we also have songs which we are singing, dancing then, if we have a lot of space at home, we are dancing around the Christmas tree all together, holding so our hands. So this is not just in fairy tales or romantic movies, but the Swedes will gather and hold hands in a circle around the tree. Yeah. Marita, thanks for a look into uh, Swedish Christmas. Can you um, give me a, a Christmas sort of greeting in uh, Swedish? We say god jul. God jul and uh, gott nytt år. Happy New Year. Good jul and gott nytt år. Yes. Tack så mycket. Varsågod. Next, Mary Barone has insider tips for how to walk, talk, and act like a Parisian. And later, we hit the streets of Madrid for fun with a couple of local guides. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Paris is admired by people all across the world as one of the most elegant cities anywhere. And one of the ingredients that makes it so special has to be the confident poise of its citizens. It didn't take long after newlywed Mary Barone left America to notice the little things that characterize the typical urban sophisticates of Paris. Things that sometimes lead to misunderstanding between our two cultures. Now she coaches Americans visiting Paris on how to fit in with the French. It's in a tour she provides called How to Walk Like a Parisian. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. So you do a tour. Is it for um, Americans that don't understand French culture? What's the idea about the tour? That's exactly it. It's for travelers who want to come to Paris and who want to fit in, who are maybe a little bit nervous about the French, maybe heard a few bad things about the ways French can treat Americans and really want to get in Uh, on the ground level, sort of know how to order, how to shop, how to not look silly. I found so many people have preconceptions about the French, and and a lot of time they're negative. Mm -hmm. What do you find the major preconceptions that Americans have about the Parisians and uh, might be misguided? I think the French can come off as a little cold and a little bit judgmental. Um, And I think that part of that is just big city culture. You know, Paris is a big 
urban space, so people have got their urban faces on, so there's not a lot of smiling and, hi, how you doing? Yeah, you, you meet a small-town French person in, in Burgundy, they're going to be a little different than oh, a Parisian. Yeah. So that's part of it is a kind of an urban aggressiveness. And then the other part is maybe being a little judgmental. The French have a pretty nice lifestyle, they think. And they think they've got it figured out. They really they? think they've got it figured out. And so if you're doing something a little bit outside of that, they're looking at you maybe like, hmm. When are you going to get you enlightened? Should, yeah, Let us show maybe you Maybe you should get on, on, uh, on our stuff here. You take a group around Paris, a bunch of um, novices, Mm -hmm. and on your tour you advertise that you teach them how to walk, eat, look, and talk like a Parisian. Mm -hmm. How do you walk like a Parisian? (laughs) Quickly. Uh, You also have to treat Parisian sidewalks like freeways. So you would never stop in the middle of a freeway. You would never stop in the middle of a French sidewalk. If you would like to stop, you sort of look behind you to make sure you won't be rear-ended and generally pull over to the side and then stop. Or if you'd like to pass someone, take a little look to the left, make sure there's no oncoming traffic. You don't have to put on your turning indicator, but you sort of slowly move in front of them and then move back back in front of them, just like on the freeway, just really? passing. So if you loiter there in the middle of the fast lane, what's going to You're going to get bumped into and someone's going to go, ah. Oh, that's that. Ugh. <laughs> and then you think, these French people just are serious. Yeah, they're so <laughs> mean, but I don't understand. And you've got your big old map out, and you're talking to each other and causing And you were scene. disturbing traffic. Yes. So this is a big city. Things work this way. Exactly. And here's this buffoon that stops in the middle of the fast lane. Exactly. So in our neighborhood, we live in Montmartre, and there's a lot of steps. So the travelers go straight up to the top of the steps. They're a little out of breath, which is understandable. And then they stop bing-bang in the middle of the steps to think, where are we? Do, do, do. Or the same when you're coming out of the metro. They'll stop right in the middle, right and at the And then what do the locals top. do? They push them out of the way. Uh, give me that sound again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How do you eat like a Parisian? Well, the French have a very specific timeline for eating. So breakfast happens early and generally at home. For example, you would never have a café au lait, those big bowls of milk, out in public. That's something you'd have at home. So You have a big bowl of coffee and milk at home, and then when you go out, your first coffee of the day is an espresso and maybe a pastry on the go, little croissant or Ah, pouch. So when I see these people at 10 o'clock in the cafe having their pastry, that's Mm -hmm. actually a a mid-morning snack. A second breakfast. A second breakfast. Mm -hmm. And lunch and dinner? Lunch and dinner happen at very specific times. So lunch is generally served from 12.30 until 2.30. So you got to get in there, and the French will eat from 12.30 to 2.30, so it's a very leisurely lunch break. Is that right? Now, is there a trend towards faster business lunches these days? There is. Yeah, there is. But the tradition is still really, really strong. My husband, for example, takes a solid two-hour lunch break. It's a sacred thing. And then dinner starts later. So dinner starting at like 7.30 is the early wave. Uh And then most people will sit down and have dinner at 8.30 or 9. I notice a lot of nice restaurants filled with Parisians late mm-hmm. in the evening. Oh, yeah. seem like tourist traps in the early seating, but that's mm-hmm. just because the Parisians are less likely to eat that early as that's the tourists. Right. Yeah, because they work later as well. And then if you're walking in front of a restaurant and you're sort of not sure, is it eating time or is it coffee time, if you look at the outside tables, if they're set, like if right. there's okay. knives and forks and placemats and wine glasses, then you know, A, they expect you to sit down and eat, not just order a coffee. And B, you should probably ask to be seated at that point, whereas if it's so a cafe... That's the difference. That's if the, the, difference, if the yeah. table setting's out, it's more formal restaurant time. It's more formal restaurant time, yeah. Whereas if you walk by that same cafe at 11 mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning or at 4 in the afternoon, hmm. none of the tables would be set. You could sit down and order whatever it is that you want in terms of a beverage, and you wouldn't have to ask to be seated. you just seat yourself. How do you look Parisian? Try not to smile too much. And then be quiet. So really, so you talk in hushed tones, and you, you talk don't in really hushed tones. Yeah, and you don't you don't have these goofy smiles that a lot of tourists right. have. That's right. Like you're less impressionable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they see people that smile a lot as a little bit naive. They wonder why, you know, what do they have to smile about? And then if you explain to them, well, I'm in. You know, it's the birds. It's the Eiffel Tower. It's and the sunshine. Kinda, yeah, but they think you're a little a bit little kinda, less sophisticated, a little, a little goofy. Maybe a simpleton. Well, maybe. Yeah. And so if you're a French person, you're happy to smile if you've got a good reason, but they don't see smiling recreationally as worth the muscle usage. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Baron. And Mary is an American who's moved into Paris, uh, fell in love with Gregoire and have a, have a baby in <laughs> Paris. Do. And she has a blog called How to Marry a Frenchman.blogspot.com. How to Marry a Frenchman. 
Mary, you talk in your blog, it's so fun to read this blog, by the way, about conversation <laughs> and how the French really want to get down to meaningful things in a conversation. <laughs> and, and that sometimes puts us in an uneasy situation. Mm-hmm. Explain. Yeah, they really do. I think they, you know, religion, politics, your job, all of these things can be a little bit touchy, but the French love to talk about their bodies uh, in a way that is really surprising to us. Okay, so you're a French woman. I'm going to just mm-hmm. say, hi, how you doing? If it was in the morning, maybe your first question, instead of saying how you're doing, would be, how did you sleep? Okay, how did you sleep? Yeah, and, and they wouldn't want to know, like, oh, did you dream about butterflies or whatever? The answer would be like, well, you know, it's the Chinese food I ate last night. I was really sweaty, and I kind of rolled over and I had a cramp in my neck, or, you know, <laughs> I slept really well because the window was open, but my nose was running. They just really, it's a very sort of... Um, Scientific, scientific, biological answer they're looking and, for. And if you've gained a little weight, would people... That's a fantastic thing to talk about. Yeah. How are you doing? Oh, well, you know, or or better, my mother-in-law, when I ask her how anyone's doing, oh, well, she lost weight. She's looking fantastic. Oh, well, you know, gained a few pounds, but it was the winter. So to, and it's just part of the how are they doing is a, is a physical update. So if you wanted to talk about even your bowel movements or how your digestion was going, a French person would be really eager to... They'd be willing to do that. Oh, yeah. They'd ask you follow-up questions. And if you come back from a vacation, they would comment on how tanned and healthy you look? Exactly, yes. They would say what a a bon mine you have, which is just sort of a general inner glow. An inner glow. And they'll comment on that. They will. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Barone about how to walk like a Parisian and how to live like a Parisian. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. David's on the line in Georgetown, Texas. David, thanks for your call. Thank you. Comment or question for Mary. Yeah, in our travels, my wife and I try to view things more as a local than than mm-hmm. as a tourist. Um, we often rent an apartment, which makes us use the local marchés and boulangeries and things like that. Mm-hmm. But is there is there something else we can do, another major thing we can do, to be more of a local and less of a tourist? Mm-hmm. Good question. Yeah. Well, I think one way to do that is certainly with your transportation options. Um, By using the metro, using the buses, you really get down with the locals. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that already. That's a great that's a great way to do it. Um, And then grocery shopping, just like you're doing, is just perfect. So Mm. just go into the grocery store. That's a good way to feel the pulse, yeah. Oh, yeah. The greetings are important when you step into a a shop or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. One of the most important ways to connect with a French person is to greet them formally. So as, as Americans, we're pretty eager to just sort of smile and nod and think that that's enough of a greeting. But to really connect with a French person, you've got to say straight up front, bonjour. And then you add, just like in the military, you know, ma'am, sir, as, as much as you possibly can. So, bonjour, madame, bonjour, monsieur. And they will reply right back to you, bonjour, monsieur. And then uh, you kind of proceed from business there. But It is quite business-like, isn't it? It's very, I mean, it's, there's a, a, it's a very regiment. formal. It's yeah. very formal. And so that's the, the one tricky bit about being a traveler is that you still sort of, uh, it's hard to break down the walls and to really feel like a down-home local and get to know people because they really do have a, a formal exterior. A lot of Americans really are raised to think the customer's king. And oh, you, yeah. And you go into a French department store or something. No, not the case at all. Yeah, they've got so many customers and not a lot of so motivation. they're doing you a favor, they're really, sort of by letting you buy something from they you. They really are, yeah. <laughs> David, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Mary's on the line in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Mary, thanks for your call. Hi. Thank you. Um, first of all, I want to tell you that I've been to Paris, and I did not find the French people to be bad at all. I really enjoyed oh, fantastic. it. fantastic. Good. And I envy you so much that you live there. What I would like to know is, would it be economical and wise mm-hmm. to, say, rent a petit air for a month and live there for a month? Would an American that doesn't know that much French be able to get around? Yes, you would. Well, let's start at the top. Yes, I think it is a wonderful idea to spend a month in any city. You really get to sink your teeth into things. And renting an apartment is a wonderful way to go because you get to live like a temporary local. You get a shop. 
you get to figure out what it's like to carry all that shopping up the stairs to your apartment. Call a plumber. Call a plumber. <laughs> Learn how to cook on a little stove the size of a Bunsen burner. Yeah, I think that that's really a great way to feel how Parisians live by renting an but apartment. But it's quite expensive to get an apartment in Paris, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, it's less expensive than a hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen any discounts for renting a month versus a week. It sort of seems like the weekly rate's Mm -hmm. that. And if you want to stay a week, great. If you want to stay a month, fine. But you certainly spread out the cost of your airplane ticket the longer you stay. That's for sure. (laughs) Mary, good luck with your dreaming of going to Paris. Thank you. Thank you. Mary Baron, you fell in love and married a Frenchman. Tell us how to give a real French kiss. (laughs) What is a French kiss, anyways? You know, that is a funny thing. If you ask a French person what a French kiss is, they'll say, kissing me. (laughs) <laughs> so they don't know about the whole what we think French kisses are. So the French kiss I'm talking about there is la bise. So the French word for kiss is bisou. Uh-huh. And a shorter version of that word is la bise. And so this is the shortened version of a kiss. So it's the cheek kiss, the ah. little hello greeting. That's almost onomatopoetic. You do a little buzz on yeah, the cheek. Yeah, exactly. Bzz. And when Americans greet each other, we will hug which to the French is really strange. Uh, They find it much more intimate than kissing, where we find kissing, oh, the French, they're so romantic, they're always kissing each other, and and to them it's the opposite. Isn't that interesting? Because when you hug, you know, you're pressing your bodies against each other. Well, exactly. Now, my sister-in-law, Magali, I really like her so much, and every time I would see her, I was so excited to see her that I would give her this enormous hug, and I could just feel her stiffen. Every part of her body was just like, why are you hugging me? And then, <laughs> Let me out of here. But she'd rather have a little buzz on the cheek. She would, because when you're hugging, things are touching. Hair is touching, breasts are touching, thighs might be touching. So the bees is actually a very small surface uh-huh. of skin that's touching. So bodies are totally apart. Um, if you make a circle with your hand here, like an OK sign, and you place that on the apple of your cheek, that's what you're aiming for. All right. And so eyes closed, noise is essential, and there must be contact. So eyes closed, turn to the left, and then eyes still closed, turn to the right. Now, the placement of this circle, depending on what you want to communicate, varies. So a very just Okay, so my OK one. circle is on the bony part of my cheek. The bony here. part of your yeah. cheek, yes. Okay. For ladies where you would apply Give the blush. Give me another little kiss right there, please. Yes, yeah, a little... Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the other side? Mwah. I'm liking this. Yes, and now, if you wanted to communicate that you are slightly more interested in this person, this zone might migrate towards the lip. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the far corner of mm-hmm. the lips, mm-hmm. but still on the cheek. Still on the cheek. Okay. Or if you're really trying to get a message across here, the lip-to-cheek ratio would change and maybe more lips, less cheek. I mean, there's a, okay. a, a huge so range of subtlety here, depending on what you're trying to say. It's quite a subtle little dance. It is. This French kissing, this little bisou, or mm-hmm. what do you call it? La bise? Yeah, well, bisou would be a full-on kiss. Oh. La bise. La bise. So you go one. to the market. In fact, that would be a good little assignment for your students on the How to yes. Walk Like a Parisian <laughs> Tour. Go to the market and observe people enjoying la bise. Yes, exactly. Or try and give someone a bisou. Now, this would be an aggressive move for a tourist who might really feel like this is outside their comfort zone. But if you went uh, to the same flower shop every day or you you were introduced to somebody, this is my friend who lives in Paris, or somehow you made some kind of a connection with a Parisian, yeah. you could immediately go in there for a bisou. And what you would do is you'd close your eyes and just kind of stick your head out a little bit, like a turtle coming out of its shell. And they'll just come at you. Yeah, because... like when I go to the same restaurant three nights in a row, after mm-hmm. a long day of sightseeing, and I'm just yeah. comfortable in my neighborhood, sure. I go to this little corner restaurant, the woman who, her and her husband run this place, uh-huh. she greets me like like an old friend on the second night. Sure, There's yeah. a case where I could close my eyes and stick out my lips. Oh, yes. And she would <laughs> give me a bees on that cheek. bony part of my cheek. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then the number of bisous changes. So in the south, there's more. In the north, there's less. Paris sort of is a, a two, two-cheek standard. Okay. But I just let myself be guided. I just keep on, I'll just give you a bisou all day if you want. However many you want. And also you can eventually insert conversation in there. Hi, how are you? Great. (laughs) I want to go to the market now and observe that. That sounds just wonderful. And when you're in Paris and you're enjoying the whole rhythm of life, a big part of it is eating and being comfortable in restaurants. Mm -hmm. So just as we have to be comfortable with our conversation, the way we walk and the way we look, Mm -hmm. when we go to the restaurants, some American travelers are just frustrated, stopping in their footprints almost. They don't know how to get a table. They don't Mm -hmm. know how to get a waiter's attention. Mm -hmm. First of all, you go to a restaurant, 
how do you how do you get a table? How do you, how do you seat yourself? Right now, there's not going to be a host or hostess stand like when you're walking into a restaurant here. So you just open the door, close the door. The French are wary of drafts, and then just sort of hover by the door until someone comes to see you. And it's going to be a quick interaction. It could be a waiter or barman. Someone's going to look up and sort of just say, "We, oui, you know, bonsoir. What do you right. need, essentially?" Right. And then you just want to indicate the number of people you need. Produce, yeah, pour deux or and you can show with your, right. your fingers if you like. And he'll motion to you yes. sit down. When in doubt, ask. And to get the waiter's attention when you want to get something going on. Yes. It's no more this garçon. <laughs> <laughs> that must be no, so annoying. No snapping, no garçon. It's all about eye contact. You don't even have to say, you know, excusez-moi or excuse right. me, sorry. Just eye contact. Just eye contact. Servers are trained to be the most discreet as possible. So they're weaving in and out. They're not going to squat by your table and say, hi, my name is Joe. I'm going to be your server tonight and write down their name. None of that. They want to be as minimally involved as possible in your meal. So if you need their attention, you look up. They're going to be looking for people, looking for them. And they'll come over as soon as they can. And they might not be in a hurry. But you shouldn't be there. You're on vacation. You know, talking to you, Mary, Mm -hmm. about the fine points of fitting in as a temporary (laughs) Parisian and as a traveler... I think we need to observe. That's a big part of it to be successful. That's right. I Uh, think we've just got to turn down the volume. That's another giveaway for us because we're pretty loud in restaurants. So just be quiet, take a look around, and then take note. See the small things that are happening. And that's as important as going to the great cathedrals and museums. It's sitting in a cafe and getting it right. And observing, staring at a painting, looking at the details. Sit in a cafe and look at the details. It's fascinating. Mary Baron, merci beaucoup. Mary Barone posts occasional blog entries and photos of her family at howtomarryafrenchman.blogpost.com. And you can find a quick link to her in all our guests' websites each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We're hitting the streets of Madrid next with Federico Garcia Barroso and Javier Menor. 877-333-RIC. That's our number at Travel with Rick Steves. best way to see any great city, I would say, is on foot. And we're going to do a great city called Madrid, the capital of Spain, on foot right now. And we're joined by two wonderful local guides from Madrid, Federico Garcia Barroso and Javier Menor. Javier and Federico, thanks for joining us. Hola, Rick. Hey, hola. So Madrid has changed a lot lately, if you're on foot, hasn't it, Federico? I really think so. I really think so. One of the priorities of our mayor was to make Madrid as much pedestrian as possible. And there are walking streets everywhere right now. And it's a very, very easy going city right now for independent travelers, you know, just to go to Madrid and walk around and discover restaurants and, and tapas places. Before you had cars parked everywhere, almost no place to walk, and now they've stuck these um, ballards or these posts up to keep mm-hmm. the cars off of the sidewalk, defending the people. But very often, you don't even have the ballard. It's only a little sign that says, do not enter, and there's a camera. So a few weeks later, you will get a picture at home. Oh, so they'll hit you mm-hmm. softly, and a nine, but and a 90 euro fine. 90 euros 90 for taking euro your car downtown. For taking your car into certain neighborhoods. And I not should, we, we should to. remind our listeners, because all over Europe now, Mm-hmm. travelers, Americans that don't read the signs very well, <laughs> are innocently driving into town to go to their hotel, and they think, my goodness, there's no traffic in this town, yeah, and they great. get a $100 fine added to their bill, yep. because anybody can take a photograph of a car and then know from the license plate mm-hmm. where the car is, they can build the car rental place, mm-hmm. and they ultimately bill you. 
and technically you can call the hotel and you can get through with the police and the hotel can call the police and say they were okay Mm -hmm. and you can get into the center. But in practice, it doesn't work very well and you should just remember Mm -hmm. it's tough to drive downtown in a lot of cities. But let's say we parked our car or let's say we came in by train. We're in Madrid now. And a beautiful thing about Madrid is things are quite compact. And uh, the way I see it, you've got the main square, the Porta del Sol, Mm -hmm. and then down the street to the left, you've got the greatest palace, uh, this side of Versailles, you've got Mm -hmm. the Royal Palace, and then a short walk to the right, you've got the greatest collection of paintings anywhere in all of Europe, the Prado. And basically, you can walk very nice, wide streets from the palace all the way to the Prado. A few yards are not that comfortable, but most of it, it's a very nice walk. I was just thinking about the Prado. It is my favorite collection of paintings anywhere in Europe. Mm -hmm. Why does Madrid have all this great art? Thanks to the the Spanish royalty. Actually, there's a history of the Spanish royalty, the owners of all this legacy. Mm -hmm. And that's why El Prado has so important collections from all over, not exclusively Spanish masterpieces, but also, I mean, all colonies that were in the hands of Spain, you know. So you can think of Madrid today as a wonderful city, but not necessarily a superpower. Mm -hmm. But if you measure it, former power by how many great mm-hmm. art treasures are happened to be mm-hmm. in that city's museum. It's clear Madrid was arguably the most powerful city in the world in its heyday. Yeah, and uh, basically the Prado is the king's collection. I like that guy. I'm not just going to buy his paintings. I'm going to hire that painter. He's going right. to come here. He's going to work for me for one year, two years, three years. Rubens, Rubens uh, Velázquez, Goya. All the Italians, the Flemish ones, all of them. And you go back to the time when the, the king of Spain mm-hmm. ruled much of Europe. I mean, the Spanish Netherlands were mm-hmm. ruled by the mm-hmm. king of Spain. Consequently, exactly. a lot of great uh, Netherlandish art, Flemish art. Just the National Heritage, the institution that is behind the Royal Palace, owns more than 3,000 tapestries. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Madrid with Javier Menor and Federico Garcia Barroso. Javier, when you think about Madrid, it's the capital of Spain, but Toledo was the capital of Spain before that. What happened? What's the story between Toledo and then to Madrid? Toledo was uh, the epicentrum. Toledo was the power, was also the establishment, and all the conflicts, all the uh, mafia, let's say, political and religious and a uh, long time ago, King Felipe II wanted to start from scratch. Ah, so mm-hmm. it was so tangled up with intrigues and corruptions and little tight town. and Everything thought, the power brings. He just said, brings. I'm out of here. And he went an hour north by yeah. fast road. Every, everybody and, thought in those days that that was just a kind of craving of an immature king called Philip II, you know. And that is unbelievable. That happened in 1561, and we are still now the capital yeah. of Spain. <laughs> and today, Madrid has, uh, what, 3 million people? More than 3 million people? How many people we are? Pretty much. Basically, cities uh, over 3 million, million and the Great Madrid. Madrid is over 5 yeah. million, somewhere okay. in between. And it's a high city. Yeah, which is very important to consider. That is the reason why so many people came here a long time ago. Highest location. capital in Europe. Is that right? Madrid? I didn't believe that, so I went capital by capital. Everybody would think about Swiss, Bern. Switzerland, yeah. Mm-hmm. Switzerland, Madrid Bern. is higher altitude than Higher altitude than Bern. Than Bern. And I've been there in the mm-hmm. off-season when you can get hit by a snowstorm. It can be very cold in the center of Spain. It happens. It happens. You know that we have a monument. Uh, we, <laughs> there's a monument at the Retiro Park, which is supposedly to be the only monument in the world dedicated to the devil because it is located above sea level, 666 meters above sea level. 666 you know? meters <laughs> yeah. above sea level. And it is yeah. an statue dedicated to the fallen angel. Exactly. Ah. Ooh, I've got to check that out next time I'm in. And a, that would be about 2,000 feet above sea level. And for everyone willing to check that, you can easily go with a GPS. Okay. And we'll tell you the altitudes. Okay, well, we're in Madrid now, and we're, we're let's leave that statue of the devil there, and we're going to walk across the city. Let's start in the center. Let's start at Porta del Sol. Mm-hmm. What does that mean in, in English, Porta del Sol? Porta del Sol, the Zan Gate, and we don't have the gate anymore, by the way. It was demolished on a, a war. long time ago. But it was just the gate facing east, you know, and Porta del Sol nowadays is considered in political geography, the geographical center of the whole Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. Now, there's a statue right there in the square of a bear mm-hmm. scratching at a bush. What's going on there, Javier? <laughs> <laughs> the bear on the tree. The bear on the tree. Javier, oh. tell me about this bear. Ooh, I, I was talking to Federica about that before. Because uh, you can ask a thousand people and you're going to get a thousand different answers. Nice. That's one thing I like about traveling in Spain. Give me one of your answers. Um, who? Complicated. Why a bear? Long time ago, uh, army from Spain waving a bear on a flag okay. on a green field and maybe a tree. All these things are you never know. You're never sure. And to make sure that it was a tree and not part of the uh, green horizon, they just painted some red dots. 
Could it be because we had a lot of those bushes called strawberry trees in the area? Could be. Could be mm-hmm. not. Could be apples. Federico, this tree is sort of this symbol of, the bear and the tree yeah. is a symbol of Madrid, not Spain, but Madrid specifically. Specifically Madrid, because we are talking about in those medieval times, they tried to find out the two most representative icons of, of fertility of Mother Nature. Okay, fertility it's of a flora fertility and, thing. Exactly, flora and fauna. And in those days, well, we had many, what we call here in America, madronos. And in Canada, they call them uh, arbustus, if I'm not wrong. That is a short tree, okay? With, with little berries. With little the berries, exactly. Berries. There's a wrong translation about that, like a strawberry tree. It is actually a madrono or arbustus, and that is quite easy to find in central Spain. But I also saw those trees in Vancouver Island, by the way, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they are everywhere. But from that, the madrilinos make a, yeah. a liqueur. Which is so sweet. And we all know that bears, they have a sweet mm-hmm. tooth, you know? And that's why the bear is climbing yeah. up the tree and trying to get that. To get those berries. And you love that drink now for its uh, sweetness. It's eh? a sweet there is, liqueur. Uh, there is now, a bar downtown called El Madroño. You can get shots mm-hmm. of that liqueur, madroño liqueur, on a little shot glass yes. mm-hmm. made of biscuit and chocolate. Yes. Oh, that's so you, nice. you drink mm-hmm. the shot and you and eat then the glass. Eat glass. Wow. <laughs> so this is a complete <laughs> cleanup of the of the glass and mm-hmm. the Madronio liqueur inside of it. I'm talking with Federico Garcia Barroso and Javier Menor. We're talking about Madrid. And when you walk around this Porta del Sol, there are wonderful shops. There's a bakery called the Confiteria La Malacuena. Ah, the Mallorquina. Mallorquina. Mm-hmm. Take Mallorquina. me into there. What are you going to see? What are you going to eat? <laughs> well, that is a paradise for people who really like sweet things, you know. Do not expect a fancy place with nice yeah, tables, great real, service. This no, is, this is cheap. This is working class. Right. Exactly. There's stuff coming right out of the oven. Mm-hmm. And they just go there to get those Napolitanas. Napolitanas coming from where? From Naples. And two yes. floors. Downstairs, you can buy something and take it with you. And upstairs, you can sit down. And you get a nice view of the action on the square from upstairs uh, Yeah, also. it's a very a very nice place this to watch people. Place. So now we're walking across Madrid. You can find uh, shops that will let you get a little peek into the culture. There's a, uh, you can find a shop selling fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Casa Diego right there. Fan is part of the Spanish culture. Yeah. Between May and September, 80% of the women are going to have a fan in their hands. And many men. And many men, <laughs> too, of course. <laughs> Is there still a language with the fans? No, not only like in the old days, like I will meet you at five, I'm single, I'm married. Oh, no. that's, they used to have that sort of symbol. Oh, huh? yes. They now could they just really can text talk. each other before but, that age yep. of texting. Little things like half, fan half <laughs> open, touching my left shoulder, I might be, I don't know, this might, might be I'm single. Fan have open touching my right shoulder right? means I am married. That sort of things. Now you might also find shawls and hair combs in these shops and many oh, yes, different of traditional. Course. That is quite traditional. And some of those places, of course, you will find some devoted people that they just go to get those head combs, you know, for some specific festivities, music festivals, religious parades and all that stuff. Now, just around the corner, there's a street called Calle de la Montera, mm-hmm. and it's lined with teenage how, girls. How, how do you know it, Rick? Because <laughs> I go there, and it's lined with teenage girls looking like they're on a cigarette break, and they're all prostitutes. Mm-hmm. What's the story with uh, prostitution in Madrid? It's, it's amazing how in the open this is there. It's not legal, but it's not illegal. It's in between. That means it is not regulated, mm-hmm. but it is not against the law. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see them on the streets. The only thing police officers could do is ask for a green card if there's mm. foreigners. Because a lot of them are immigrants. I could say most of them in Montero Street. Yeah. And uh, that's it. A tourist will invariably find themselves walking up the street and seeing that. But if you continue going farther mm. across the Via Grande, then it becomes dangerous in my experience. No. Oh, really? No, not, no, no. not anymore. Okay, so it's getting nicer. It is the neo-hip section of Madrid. It's the new hip section. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, okay, but a few years ago, I went in there and I felt like I've I got to turn around yeah. and, and find my mother. But right now, there is a street <laughs> called Desengaño mm-hmm. and Ballesta. They're behind the big Telefonica building. That's right, yeah. Right, first uh, skyscraper in the city 100 years ago. And Desengaño Street, Ballesta Street, are the new hip streets yeah. because you've got the really nice, fancy shop. What would I go? I would go to a cafe or a, a bar? Yeah, you have yeah. quite a few nice cafes there. All right, we're talking about Madrid. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Federico Garcia Barroso and Javier Menor. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Tom's on the line in Hartville, Ohio. Tom, thanks for your call. Thank you. We were there last fall, and we were in many of the areas that you were discussing, including the Prado Museum and the Retiro Park, so many of those areas. But we were thinking of, when we are going back, to go beyond. And I don't mean like 100 miles, but maybe just four or five miles. What, what, what would they recommend for us to hop on the metro to just go a couple miles further to see what else is available 
for, for sightseers. Uh, you don't have to go that far. Right behind the Royal Palace, we have the new latest hottest spot in Madrid, and it's the river. Because uh, the riverbanks, approximately yes. six miles of riverbanks, it used to be traffic, a ring road. But a few years ago, those roads have been uh, rebuilt underground, and the mm -hmm. riverbanks, now it's a continuous four-mile park on both sides of the river. And it is the latest hottest spot in the city, Madrid Rio, Madrid River. It is a new profile of the city, and it's so clean and so beautiful. So this is so beyond the Royal Palace. Behind yeah. it, on the valley, down there. And it used to be a traffic-congested area? Oh, yeah. The oh, Ring see, Road. This is this wonderful mayor you had. Wasn't his nickname the Mole or something? He was that was digging, the previous one. The previous one. <laughs> digging down, putting all the traffic the under this. The Mole, El Topo. Oh, yeah. man, that is yeah. great. And now we have parks, like you're talking about here. Where Four miles. And the yeah. Madrid people, the Spanish people, love to come out for of the course. paseo. Of course, I mean... Where's the best paseo now, Federico? The best paseo, well, that is actually now the new, the new area, you know, the new area. But I have to say, I have to say that no matter where you are, everyone really enjoys to go always to downtown, to the center, because there are more and more and more walking streets and no cars. Tom, when were you in Madrid last? Mid-September. And did you get out and enjoy the paseo? Yes. I, I enjoy just watching people. Uh -huh. So that's always uh, a sight, to just watch people. When we would go to a restaurant, we would go, say, 10 blocks beyond to get away from the crowds to, to go to restaurants. You know, I would sit outside. A lot of times in a cafe, you'd, uh, you'd see there's three tiers of prices, one at the bar, one at a table, and one outside in the terrace. I'll pay double for my cafe con leche. I sit outside on the Plaza Mayor. That's the greatest piece of real estate in Madrid, and just watch the people. That's a show. Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, just sit down and enjoy the views. <laughs> you know, Tom was talking about getting out of the city a little ways. Mm. I remember catching a bus from the Prado mm -hmm. and going straight out to the two skyscrapers that sort of face inwards. A Plaza Castilla up north. north. Yeah, Plaza Castilla. And you can get out there and walk around, and this is very striking. Tell me about that out there, this really modern architecture. Yeah, that is actually the, the new Madrid, the, the four colossus, those four huge towers that are right there. That is a new business center, and it's still now under construction. You know, we have those four towers that you see from everywhere because they're just huge. And a lot of travelers never get out of the central zone that we're doing on foot, but you can, mm -hmm. for a couple dollars, hop on that bus, ride it all the way out to yeah. the end. It's sort of the gateway to the north, isn't and, it? Uh, exactly. There's a northern gate, yeah. A couple of those towers, 800 foot mm -hmm. towers, yeah. mm -hmm. they have restaurants that run the uh, 30th floor. 30th mm -hmm. floor, that must so be So you've got great views. Tom, there's some ideas for you. Thanks for your call. Thank you, and pleasure uh, being on your show. Thank Thanks. you, and happy travels. Thank you. When you're in Madrid, you can walk from the main square, the Puerto del Sol, over to the historic sort of square, the old historic center of the town, the Plaza Mayor. And this is just really the, the community living room in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Totally. That is, that is the, there we find the roots of Madrid. You know, when, when we guide people in Madrid, we just show them the old Madrid and the new Madrid, the Madrid of those Habsburgs, you know, just before mm. 1700, and the Madrid of those Bourbons after 1700. The Plaza Mayor is, I will say, the most charismatic place in mm. Madrid. One of the best examples of Castilian classical architecture, I will say, Madrid, and Salamanca also has a beautiful square. This is sort of the uh, the living room of so many cities, people living yeah. outdoors, and this is the elegant place where everybody can go. And mm -hmm. just uh, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can sit there and, and feel the pulse of Madrid. I don't have a driving license, you know. I don't, I, I'm, I was about to say, I don't have a car. I don't have a driving license. I don't need to drive a car. I just go walking everywhere, you know, and that's what I do in my city. And you if know, I'm late, I take a taxi, which is quite inexpensive, by the way. I know so many Europeans that just have not gotten around to learning how to drive because <laughs> why bother? You've got such great public transportation. By the way, most of our cars are a stick shift. Is that right? Well, oh, that's, yeah. that's a problem for a lot of Americans when they go to, <laughs> to Europe because <laughs> you ask for an automatic and they go, what? Okay. Hey, Javier, when you're on the Plaza Mayor, this main square, you've got a chance, if you don't want to go to a bullfight, to actually go into a bar that is uh, filled with aficionados of bullfighting. Yeah, with, with sort of paraphernalia there and the heads of the bulls who mm. already fought in the ring. They're hanging there, lots of pictures. Incredible gory photographs of matadors getting gored, yeah, actually. Yeah, I mean, it happens every now and then. And it's quite a macho thing. I mean, you've got Che Guevara, you've got Robert Kennedy, El Cordobes, Francisco Franco, all there <laughs> with the matadors. Women, they're crazy about the hot matadores. Most of them are really handsome boys, really thin, sculptural bodies. With tight pants. And no underwear. Yeah. Is that right? Uh-huh. All right. Well, I don't know where to take that. <laughs> I was with a guide once... Uh, in Sevilla, this old guide, old school guide, and 
She was just such a crusty old guide, and she just became so excited when we went to the ballerina and talked about how she found Matador so sexy. <laughs> so sexy. Now every time I look at a Matador, I can think, yeah, I guess that it's pretty sexy for the Spanish women. We have a guy now, he's into the bullfighting. He's the end of the uh, lineage of the two most uh, famous families in the world of bullfighting. Oh, the El Cordobese family? Uh, Rivera Ordóñez and uh, Francisco Those, Rivera, his brother. And his brother, both brothers, yeah. He's even an Armani model. He Is model, that right? He models for Armani. How do you say hot in Spanish? Está bueno. Está bueno. Está bueno. Está bueno. Ser bueno o estar bueno, El método sí. está bueno. <laughs> Si el matador es bueno, that means that he's a cool, a nice person. But if el matador está bueno, that means that he's sexy. But how do you say very, very hot? Very, very hot. Este. Está buenísimo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm. And when you're on Plaza Mayor, every time I go there, I find these uh, tango dancers. I mean, you have street musicians all over Europe, but in Madrid, you can have people dancing the tango for coins and so on. Is that still on the Plaza that is, Mayor? That is a way to see how the Latin American community is quite important in our country, you know, because we have flamenco dancers, we have tango dancers, we have other kind of dancers, but I really like those ones. That the, the tango dancers are really, really good, and they just spontaneously, there they are, you know, in, in, in Plaza Mayor or next to the Royal Palace, and it's so elegant, so beautiful. People really enjoy that. They're full of soul and, and totally. passion. And totally. it's so Spanish. Obviously, they're basking. Then they will ask for some money. Oh, of but course. it's a free show. It's a great show. It's, a, it's well worth a couple of euros. And that's just the beginning of Madrid. There's so much more of Madrid to discover, the, the highest capital in Europe. I call Madrid the sleeper. The sleeper? Madrid is the sleeper of Europe. It really is. Because everybody talks about Barcelona, Paris, Rome. Madrid mm -hmm. is the sleeper. It's there to discover. You know, Absolutely. I would not disagree with that. Madrid is an exciting place to check out, and it is so accessible these days, and you'll enjoy a warm welcome in a beautiful place that is quite a bargain when it comes to travel. Javier, Federico, thank you very much. You've given us a lot of great ideas about your beautiful city. Thank you, Rick. Pleasure. Thank you. Adios. Adios. Ciao. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Catton with Sarah McCormick. You'll find audio archives of each week's show and links to our guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's also where you can sign up to be notified of our next recording sessions, where you can talk with Rick and his guests. And it's where you can listen to Rick's walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites. They're in a format that you can download to your smartphone or MP3 player. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to France, to Spain, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Paris's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next French adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.